Welcome to FICP's podcast series, FICP Focus 45. FICP is the only international NGO whose membership consists entirely of IP attorneys in private practice. The FICP global community is driven by a shared interest among like-minded people to promote common solutions and advocacy for private practice. The FICP business family makes the world a little bit smaller, bringing independent IP attorneys from around the globe together to focus on IP issues of global importance. Our host is Louis-Pierre Gravel, a registered patent agent and partner at Bereskin & Par in Montreal, Canada. And today's guest is David Schiavetti from Rothwellfic in Washington. They'll be discussing the intersection between IP and fashion law. Later in the podcast, we'll also be taking questions from our listeners who joined the live webinar as it was recorded. Good morning, David, and welcome to this webinar. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for for having me and for joining us on this webinar today. Excellent. What we're going to talk about this morning is, again, so trademarks and IP, obviously, and how trademarks are important in the field of fashion. Yeah. So I've been working um, at Rothel Fig for about five years, and I specialize in trademark law. But of course, uh, you know, because we're talking in general about the intersection between fashion fashion law and IP law, I have to say that really one of the most interesting aspects about fashion from a legal perspective is that it really spans the whole spectrum of IP protection because it's so multifaceted in nature. Fashion companies have to rely on all protection available for intellectual property from copyright to um, trademark, which we'll see today. Um, design patents. And yeah, personally, I think that this is one of the most interesting um, and certainly challenging aspects of, um, you know, for both the fashion companies and their counsel to make it so the existing framework um, of intellectual property protection fit the multifaceted nature and needs of protecting um, goods and services for, for the fashion world. So before we go into the topping, and I don't want to, to lead you down a, a rabbit hole, but there is some questions about the intersection between industrial designs or design patents as they're known in the US and trademark. And I suppose that in some cases they can coexist. In some cases, you can start with a design that will potentially eventually become uh, a trademark. We've seen this happen in Canada in a few cases, but would you recommend that a holistic approach to protection be envisaged from the get-go to try to see what is the best strategy moving forward for a particular word or logo? Sure. So obviously it's a very um, complicated analysis because uh, the requirements are very different for the two types of intellectual property protection. So obviously in the U.S., unlike you know, many other countries use in commerce is uh, quite problematic for trademark registrations, meaning obviously there has to be some sort of um, use in commerce to either file a use-based application or, you know, file an intent to use application. Of course, for design patents, that's not necessarily the case because unlike many other jurisdictions, the U.S. really sees the designs as part of the patent world. Um, right. I know in Europe, for instance, isn't the case. And so obviously the requirements are very different. So every jurisdiction obviously has different regulations. And so it is very important to try and optimize protection and choose the appropriate type of protection. Exactly. And and in fact, your, your point is interesting because you're right. In the United States, the design patents 
system is integrated into the traditional, more traditional patent system. Whereas in Europe, it's probably more akin to the trademark system in the registration of a trademark and a design patent. In Canada, interestingly enough, industrial design branch was sort of under the wing of the patent branch for many, many years. And a few years ago, there was a restructuring at the Canadian IP office, and they took the industrial design branch and merged it into the trademark branch, which structurally should mean nothing because the legislation is the same. But we'll see if the resources and the approach that's taken at trademarks trickles down into industrial designs in Canada. So let's get into the meat of the topic today, which is, of course, something that many people who are listening to us will not consider a generic trademark, but certainly have a pair of lying in their house or their, their flat somewhere, or have certainly seen them. And that's the case of the boots that are known under the mark UGG, which is an interesting pronunciation for a trademark. But anyway, let's start the presentation, David. Essentially, the case is the Decker's Outdoor Corp v. Australian Leather. And, you know, this case focuses on trademark protection and more specifically on two main issues um, under U.S. law. One is um, genericness, obviously. And the second one is the application of the foreign equivalent doctrine. So let's dive right in. For those who maybe are not familiar with the case or want to get a more, more background information on this. So essentially, Decker's Outdoor Corp is the owner of the UGG brand. They are a footwear designer and distributor based in California. And they bought the UGG brand and the company that was distributing the UGG product in 1995. Essentially, they filed suit in 2016 against Australian Leather and its owner, Adnan Oiger, as an individual. And they asserted claims, several claims, but the main ones that we'll focus on today are trademark infringement and design patent infringement. Just as a side note, essentially, Australian Leather only sold 12 pairs of these generic <laughs> UGG boots. And so that's what prompted the lawsuit. The defendant counterclaimed, among other things, that essentially the Decker's trademarks containing the word UGG um, should be canceled because in Australia, the term UGG is generic. Um, and so it should be considered the same in the United States. So it's a, it's a very interesting um, position and we'll see there, there's going to be evidence about it, which makes it even more interesting. But yeah, essentially, if UGG is generic, then Deckers should not be able to enforce the registrations. In fact, they should have never been able to obtain the registrations. So a very short brand history just to, to get a sense of how these boots came to be, you know, the billion dollar venture that, that they are today. UGG was founded in California in 1978 by an Australian surfer. And essentially, they first tried to apply for a trademark in the U.S. with the PTO in 1980. Uh, was rejected. And then, obviously, in the first season of business, Ag Imports, which is the company that um, obviously was distributing the Ag boots, only sold 28 pairs of boots. And then it steadily grew, mostly their business was focused in Southern California. So it wasn't necessarily a national business venture, but quite localized. In fact, by I think 1994, 80% of the UGG sales were in Southern Orange County. Um, but the company gained international attention when the boots were worn by US Olympic team in the 1904 Winter Olympics. And so in 95, Deckers acquired 
the business for $14.6 million. And since then, they became the, the big sheep um, skin suit. So <laughs> the, they're, they're ubiquitous today. You can, you can find them everywhere. In fact, I was walking around in Montreal in the summer and I saw people wearing these boots in, in full summer, 30 degrees outside. And I'm like, hmm, okay, they must yeah. be pretty comfortable. Right. And it's, and it's interesting because originally they were really worn by surfers only in Australia um, to keep their feet warm and be comfortable, you know, to go to the beach. So now we see them in, in every declination, essentially, you know, from <laughs> slippers to, to boots to, to flip-flops. So the first main issue of the case is really doctrine of foreign equivalent. Let's go back a little bit. So, so these boots were used very locally. 1994, the U.S. Olympic team wears them. They're a big success. Yep. This is pre-Twitter, pre-Facebook, pre-mass like, social media, but they, ca- they catch on. Decker buys the trademark and turns it into a multi-billion dollar business. Exactly. So they, they obviously wanted to elevate the product and make it a luxury item. And I think they succeeded because obviously they're very successful. And especially in the early 2000s, most, I want to say, movie stars were wearing them and sponsoring them. And so it was a very successful campaign, I think, of elevating a product from what was really just, I guess, common item to a luxury item. Right. So now we're looking at, so the trademark's been registered, mm-hmm. uh, evidently. Yep. Decker finds that Australian leather has been infringing or thinks they've been infringing on their trademark. They sue them for trademark infringement. Correct. The question that's raised is that of the doctrine of foreign equivalent. So can you explain to us a little bit what is this, this doctrine? Yes. So the first issue is really the application of this doctrine. And the doctrine of foreign equivalent is a well-established doctrine that the USPTO adopts when examining trademark applications. Essentially, it prohibits registering any word that, if translated into English, would translate into an English generic word. And this is to avoid, essentially, the goal is to extend the protection of the Lanham Act, uh, which is the act that governs trademark registration in the U.S., to customers in the U.S that do not necessarily speak English as their first language, because, of course, the U.S. has a very diversified pool of languages that are spoken on a daily basis. And so uh, whenever a customer sees a product on a shelf of a supermarket, and that product may be called by a name that you know, is a foreign name, and they speak that language, they will obviously translate that word in their head, and they'll, they'll understand what the meaning is. And so the idea is that confusion can occur even through a foreign word, even though obviously, you know, that language might not be an official language in the United States. Right. Um, so Palm Bay was probably the leading case in this issue. And there, the court essentially to avoid an unconditional application of the doctrine specified that the PTO has to apply the foreign equivalence doctrine only when it is likely that an American will stop and translate that word. And this stop and translate is a phrase that will be at the center of the dispute in this case as well, because we'll see there's a split between the federal circuit and so the stop and translate case law, and then other circuits in the United States that have a different threshold for the same doctrine. Right. So what I understand then is that even in the United States, although at first blush, this doctrine could be or should be 
easily adaptable or easily used to test whether or not a term is generic. There are some subtleties in this, and there's been this divergence in the various courts in the United States. Yes. So for instance, the Second Circuit had this case where, you know, they, they, they really ruled that we should consider the meaning of the word in the country from which that word comes from. So for instance, they had this case about Otokoyama, I apologize for the pronunciation, and I, I may be butchering it, but essentially in, in Japan. And it was, you know, obviously a very common generic term for food product. And so, and so essentially it was denied registration in the U.S. because the court reasoned that would prevent other players in the market from using that word, and it just would not be fair. And so similarly, the Fifth Circuit had a similar case about the term chupa, which signifies lollipop in Spanish, and in Mexico is, is a, apparently a generic term for, for lollipop. And, and same thing, Seventh Circuit with the term yo-yo for the Philippines. So obviously there's a there's a split, and this is also very interesting because another element that comes at play with the doctrine of foreign equivalence is that essentially the doctrine requires that the terms be from a common modern language, which encompasses all but dead, obscure, and unusual languages. So. Uh, as a lawyer, obviously, there's a lot of wiggle room in here, <laughs> you know, to to um, to argue that a language is obscure or unusual to try and get out of the application of the foreign equivalent doctrine. And, you know, that obviously opens up the question of what constitutes an obscure language. So one example that I can recall, and uh, forgive me, I can't exactly recall the case law reference, but I remember that essentially Hawaiian is not considered common, even though obviously it is native to a U.S. state, <laughs> because in this case, essentially, the evidence showed that the speakers amounted to about 25,000, if I remember correctly. And so that was not enough to qualify as a common language. The case at hand, however, is more complicated because we're not even analyzing a foreign language. So obviously, the Ugg boots um, originate from Australia. And so Australia's official language is English. And so is, uh, well, there's technically no official language of the United States, but you know, the, the main, the main um, spoken language of the United States is English with Spanish. And so there's really a problem here in terms of translating English to English. And the issue is that obviously the case law uh, or anywhere really, there's no reference to American English, British English, Canadian English, you know, Australian, South African, and so forth, uh, but just English. And so how do we categorize English as just one language when obviously there are some words that may be generic in one country where English is spoken and not generic in another one? And I just included a couple of examples here, you know, for the British listeners, <laughs> Kappa, for instance, you know, I'm sure it's very common in in the UK, everyone would know what that means. May not be the case in the United States, may not be the case in South Africa and, and so forth. And same with Barbie, with, you know, barbecue in Australian English. You know, not everyone in the US may be familiar with this term and know what that means. And they may think, you know, the, they may think about the doll, for example, and not, and not the barbecue. And so what would happen if someone would try to register a trademark or apply for a trademark for barbecue-related services with Barbie in it? Would that be considered generic? 
or not. So obviously, um, there's an extra layer of, um, of issues here, which is not just obviously analyzing a foreign language's translation into English, but let's call it English dialect into English, American English, obviously. Okay, so that's the doctrine of foreign equivalence. That was one of the yes. issues that was raised. The other issue that was raised, which kind of ties into this one, is that of genericness. Correct. So genericness is obviously the main, one of the main issues that, you know, dispute in this case. Um, so let's take a closer look at what genericness means and how it was handled in this case. So a generic term is one which is commonly used as a name or description of a kind of good. And this is clearly in contrast with the bedrock principle of trademark law, which is the right to exclude others from using a certain word or combination of words or logo because they represent a brand and their goodwill. Obviously, if this word that one seeks to register as a trademark uh, and to have exclusive rights over is a generic word, then, you know, by, by which people refer to the specific good or service, then it would just not be fair in terms of uh, market accessibility to allow one trademark owner to monopolize the use of a generic word and preclude others from using it. So I would say there's a contrast there. And that's why genericness is one of the uh, main, I want to say, substantive refusals that will be raised during trademark examination by the PTO. And so while assessing genericness may seem straightforward, right? If a term is generic, most people should understand that that term has a generic meaning. The problem is that the assessment requires the identification of the relevant public because it doesn't necessarily, uh, the assessment cannot be made just based on the totality of the U.S. consumers or any other countries, right? So it has to be relevant for the public that will be exposed to that mark or to that term if it were to register. And so what would we really mean by that? Well, obviously, it would be a very high threshold if genericness were to be assessed only based on the totality of U.S. consumers. And so that's why they're there is the need to identify the relevant public. And this will be also one very contentious issue in this case. Based on the evidence that we'll, we'll see very shortly, the relevant public is key in this case. And so essentially, to help the assessment, the ge genericness is based on the perception of the consumers that the specific good or service is marketed to. And that really limits the pool, obviously depending on the good or, or service. And so finally, just for sake of completeness, there are really two types of genericness. One, which is the one at issue, for instance, in this case, in the Deckard's case, is the genericness ab initio, which means that uh, what Australian Leather is really arguing is that the term was generic even before Deckers obtained the registration. So before they applied for the trademark registration. And so it was quote unquote an error by the PTO to grant the registration because even before they even marketed the goods, the term was generic. It was essentially a mistake on the PTO not to pick that up or issue the refusal. And so the second type is really genericness that occurs after registration. So say and, you know, I, I, I list some examples here. Um, uh, trademark lawyers like to call it genericide. So it's essentially when a brand is so successful or just permeates the 
common language so much that people refer to the good or service by that word and don't necessarily mean the brand anymore. They just refer to the good itself. And so at that point, you know, genericide kills the trademark registration. So you you will lose your trademark registration. So you are so successful that you lose your trademark registration. I guess it's a good problem to have, but, um, you know, it it can be problematic. And some of the um, most famous examples are obviously aspirin, laundromat, linoleum, videotape. And so, so there are two types of genericness. And, you know, the one we're really looking at today is the one Abinitia, because that's the argument put forth by Australian leather. Right. So Decker comes back and says, okay, we'll, we've done some, some surveying and uh, our conclusions are that the mark is not generic and here's how we performed our study. So walk us through a little bit Decker's survey and especially how yeah. they identified what they considered to be the relevant public. Yeah. So of course, one of the most important elements in this case, and honestly, for most fashion law related case that deal with similar issues is the presentation of evidence and the type of evidence required to show the strength of a brand. And, you know, one of the king um, pieces of evidence is obviously surveys. So Decker has provided three, which is, you know, very useful in terms of just tracking the evolution of the strength of the brand. And so, as you can see, they defined the relevant public as women between the age of 16 and 54, uh, which I'm honestly not entirely sure why the specific age range, but I guess it is a broad enough range that can really help a showing of, of strength in case of positive results, which obviously they had. So, you know, it's a bit arbitrary, I, I think, but Obviously, you know, it's a, it's a big enough range to help their calls. And then the second element is women who purchased shoes, except athletic shoes, <laughs> um, in the last 12 months or who plan to do so in the next 12. So again, I think this is so broad that it essentially covers most people as I think, you know, the term plan can, d- can be interpreted kind of loosely and it's not very defined. So I- I'm not really sure that it's a very limiting element, but obviously, again, if the results are good, the broader the, the pool of people that were surveying, the stronger the evidence will be. And so they had every interest to be, I think, as broad as possible because they they started from a solid base. So this survey was not done just once. It was actually done three times. Correct. So the first one was in what, 2004? Yeah. So only not even 10 years after they acquired the mark. And so that was, I think, where the bulk of their, obviously, efforts to try and convert this item to a luxury item. And you can already see that, you know, 58% of respondents viewed UGG as a brand already in 2004. And then, you know, we have a 2011 survey, huge increase, uh, because as I said, in the early 2000s, there's been huge effort, huge popularization of the brand, of the item, uh, became um, contentious fashion item. <laughs> um, and so then in 2017, you have 98 of respondents that viewed UGG as a brand. And so as a lawyer looking at, at these surveys, you know, you, you have to be kind of scared to be in Australian leather shoes because you say, well, obviously there's very solid brand recognition. So how do we, how do we really counter that? Well, what they did is they shifted the focus on a different time period. And as we can see from 
the linguistics analysis that is the second essentially element of or, or evidence provided by Deckers, they had to respond to this shift, right? So they, they, they provided a linguistics analysis that analyzed two different time periods, one between 1970 and 1980, which is approximately the time period from where all of Australian leather's evidence comes from. And then a second period, which is 2009-2015, which is essentially the six years prior to the filing of the lawsuit in 2016. So what this means is that essentially they, they conducted a search of the databases and dictionaries for the term AG to see if any entries were found or the use of the word was at all generic in both time periods. And then they provided... Uh, as a last piece of evidence, the Complete Footwear Dictionary. The Complete Footwear Dictionary is a book that identifies over 110 types of boots. It is considered, and this is something that I learned, uh, and I hope I will, information that I will use in the future, (laughs) the most authoritative book on the subject. And it did not contain the word UG. Of course, the results of the linguistics analysis uh, mirrored the fact that really AG was not considered a generic term. And so how did Australian leather counter pretty so, strong evidence? Yeah, so let's look at that. I can almost predict that there's going to be a spike in search terms for complete footwear dictionary following this <laughs> webinar, because everyone's yeah. going to go out and, and take a look at this, at this dictionary. <laughs> right. I didn't even know it existed, so... There you go. Neither Thank did you. I, but it's, uh, it's uh, yeah, it's interesting to know. And obviously there's, there's more books out there than we, than we think there are. So for, for literally everything. So. so, so time is ticking forward. Let's go to Australian leathers evidence. Yes. So essentially what they, what they did is they provided, well, four Australian boot suppliers testified about their experiences selling sheepskin boots to U.S customers. So one trader, for instance, testified that he sold a thousand pairs per week in the United States between the 60s and the 70s, and that he referred to the product generically as Ugg boots. However, he sold most of these items to surf shops um, and did not sell them to the mainstream footwear shops. Very localized. Right. And this is because originally these boots were used by surfers. um, And so he was catering to that audience. And then Mr. Bosley testified that he tried to sell Ugg boots in the U.S., but Americans weren't really interested. But he opened four retail stores in L.A., which stayed open for about two years, I I believe. And then, again, he also testified that he was referring to Ugg boots generically. Same thing, Mr. Derizi, um, a tanner, Australian tanner, who also sold about 800 pairs in the U.S. in 1983, testified that he referred to Ugg boots as, you know, a generic term. And finally, there was a surf shop, the McKendry surf shop, where essentially the owner testified that he learned about these sheepskin uh, boots during a trip to Australia in the 70s, um, and that Australians used the word Ugg to refer generally to the type of boot um, and not to a brand. And so he sold some of these boots in the U.S., um, in Florida, I believe. And he believed the term to be generic. He placed advertisements on two, uh, one magazine and one newspaper. And so essentially Australian leather, what, what they're trying to say is Australian surf shop owners or American surf shop owners that came to the United States and marketed these goods really 
used the term generically and that's where it originates from and they were catered these products were catered to surf the surf community essentially the surf community and surf shop owners and so the relevant public really is the surf community and not the general footwear customer base and so the discussion was really about the relevant public and so that would if accepted as true by the court that would essentially throw out most of Decker's evidence as irrelevant because obviously the surveys were not targeted to surf communities. So similarly, the the linguistics analysis too. So let's go into this analysis. What was the conclusion? Essentially, the conclusion was that the court sided with Deckers saying that obviously, even though there was evidence of some generic use, you know, in the 70s and 80s, before the brand took over, it seems that this use was limited to certain communities Uh, in certain areas. However, because the brand was so successful later on, that took over and kind of overwhelmed the evidence of genericness that was presented in the 70s and about from the 70s and 80s. And so that the relevant public now is the general public in terms of footwear um, customer base and not the surfing community, which may have been the case in the 80s, but obviously in 2016 uh, wasn't the case anymore. And so obviously the court has to analyze the use at the time of the, of the lawsuit, right? And so I think that is very interesting because obviously there is a balance that had to be stricken between the evidence and the two relevant time periods. Um, and then the other element is obviously the use of the term. Um, so Australian Leather kept arguing that obviously the use in Australia can influence the perception of U.S. consumers. And here there's an interesting element, which is social media, which can work both ways, really. But obviously, you know, these terms that are quote unquote dialect English are, I guess, more prone to to be popularized by social media, because um, while in the past, obviously, language uh, was more limited to to the country. Now, with social media, there's more access even to territories that you don't necessarily travel to. And so, you know, American consumers may be exposed to the word ag as a generic, even if it's just used in Australia, um, even without traveling there, but they may just be exposed to that. Um, and the other way around, obviously, you know, um, as a brand, you know, there's a very famous brand in Australia, they might not necessarily sell um, in the United States, but US consumers may be uh, familiar with the with that brand simply because they they see it on social media. And so how does that play into the application of the doctrine and the analysis of genericness? Right. So ultimately the brand or the, or the mark was held to be registered and registrable. It was a valid trademark. It was determined that there was infringement. And this was a jury trial too, right? Correct. So this court granted um, summary judgment uh, in favor of Decker's. And there was a four-day jury trial um, that found that Australian leather willfully infringed Decker's marks. And from the sale of 12 pairs, uh, the jury awarded uh, $450,000 in damages, which you know, seems um, like a lot. But obviously, because the infringement was willful, I think that obviously played a role 
in the determination of damages. Um, what's interesting is that just a couple of weeks ago, late October, Australian Leather filed a writ of um, certiorari with the Supreme Court. So they're appealing the decision and they're asking the Supreme Court to review the case on the basis of essentially the split. So they're asking the Supreme Court to resolve the split between the various circuits and the federal level because obviously creates confusion and um, there needs to be more clarity about um, about the application of the doctrine and um, you know the genericness analysis. Right. So thank you very much. I guess I'm going to start off with one question, which is the temporal aspect to this case. And I wonder if the court might have been influenced by the fact that, or an implicit recognition that maybe, maybe in the 1970s and 1980s, there might have been, or the, these, this particular mark might have been generic. But when Decker came in and purchased the mark and really put in a lot of money to promote it, it lifted itself up from the generic realm into the brand realm. Would you agree right. with that? Yeah, I, I definitely would. It's, uh, it's, if you will, it's the opposite of genericide. So essentially you had a generic term that, or at least generic in Australia, right, in a different country. And then someone took that term and really made it a brand and, you know, invested in terms of advertisement and product placement and, you know, really elevating the, the item to a luxury item and created brand recognition strong enough to amount to 98% uh, brand recognition in 2017. So, you know, you can see the trajectory there um, from, you know, 58% to, to 98 in essentially just over 10 years. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's quite impressive. And um, of course, the court, I think, had to take that into consideration. I think ultimately, the problem was that the generic use of the term was too limited in time, in space, community-wise, to really impact the strong brand recognition evidence that Deckers was able to, to submit. So one question, interesting, um, yep. and I think you've partly answered it, is, well, how can something that's generic ever rise to be protectable, uh, which seems to go against basic trademark uh, frameworks? And would that implicitly mean that the court considered that UG was never, in fact, a generic term? Right. Um, so I think the answer to this is um, a combination of factors. And I, the main loophole I see is that, A, the term was considered generic, but not according to the country where the application, the trademark application was examined. And generally, this is caught by the foreign equivalent doctrine. So, you know, obviously they don't expect PTO examiners to be fluent in all languages of the world. And so they will require that translations be submitted with the application whenever you file for a foreign word um, so that they can know um, whether that translation translates into a generic English word. But here the loophole is obviously that there was English to English. And I think also in the 90s, I think the, the application of the doctrine was less consolidated because obviously there was, you know, the case law really came out from the 2000s onwards. And, uh, you know, as a result of globalization, the internet, remember, you know, these, this trademark application was filed, I think, in 
94 or, or 93. So, um, you know, the internet was not even really a thing. So, you know, at the end of the day, it was it was much harder for, for the trademark office also to try and and um, make sure that there wasn't a generic term somewhere in the world that was registered into, you know, the principal register of the United States. Yeah. So that's an interesting conversation. I think we should continue on this topic a little bit because um, at least in some jurisdictions, for example, trademarks did become generic by the virtue that they were used generically without enough supervision from the trademark owner, but through time re-became a trademark uh, a registered trademark. And I'm going to go out on a limb on this one, but I think Kleenex is now a registered trademark in Canada, but I don't know if it's just the word mark or the design. But in, in any event, some of these have over time been able to reclaim some of that some of that protection. Is that because, and, and in this case, would you say that it's because of the significant efforts that Decker um, deployed to promote and place in the mind of the consumers this distinction that it is not in fact a generic term, but it is a trademark. Right. And I think an interesting strategy, and I don't know if this was um, uh, welfare or not, but uh, was obviously diversifying the type of products, right? So they, they launched the UGG trademark, or they really invested on the UGG trademark for the, for the boots. But over time, they, they diversified their products. And so at that point, you don't necessarily equate UGG or the trademark UGG to only the boots, but also wider um, array of products. Something like Kleenex might be a little bit harder simply because it's, I think, just, you know, by the nature of the product, harder to diversify. And then um, again, in any event, I think ultimately the question is, what country are we really analyzing the genericness on, right? So for instance, I'm sure that there's many countries in the world that don't call a Kleenex a Kleenex, right? They they use a different word in in their own language. And so Kleenex wouldn't be generic in a country different from the US. Um, You know, I'm Italian, for instance, and I don't think that Kleenex would be generic in Italy. Um, People don't refer to Kleenex as a Kleenex. Um, And so... It really depends on the country. Yeah, so this is what happened here, essentially. So that's very interesting. And someone just piped in to say that Kleenex has been a registered mark in the UK since 1925, so it hasn't become generic in the UK. So another question, and I'm, I'm not sure that you have the answer, but it raises <laughs> the issue. <laughs> You'll try. So it raises the issue of words that might be used in First Nations languages, which are admittedly, in some cases, dying languages. In some cases, they're spoken like the Hawaiian or the Maui yeah. by a very limited population. Yeah. Um, so there's there's the issue of someone recognizing that one of these words might make a good trademark and, and plucking it and applying it to, to trademarks. But then that would sort of collide with the raising awareness of Aboriginal IP rights and how from that perspective, would the fact that the word is used by an Aboriginal community hold more weight in the analysis that was presented in the UGG case? Yeah, it, it is interesting, definitely. And I think it's problematic because, for instance, you know, with Hawaiian, you know, the, the trademark office is really, the, the U.S. trademark office is 
the office that controls right IP rights over the land where this language is native. So then, you know, obviously the fact that the doctrine the doctrine doesn't apply uh, becomes problematic because then it won't really be protected anywhere else if it's not even in their own country. But how do you really draw the line? It's, that, that's, that's a hard part. And I think that the concept of native language to a country where that particular trademark office is, is almost irrelevant for the, for the doctrine because mm-hmm. they actually protect languages, foreign languages more than native. And that is simply because of the number of speakers. So, you know, for instance, I'm thinking, you know, Chinese, obviously not native to the United States, but it definitely has far more protection than Hawaiian, which is native to the United States. Um, Yeah, the analysis is essentially the the number of speakers, uh, which, you know, leaves behind these less, quote unquote, common languages, even though they're native to the country that they that they refer to. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not the Supreme Court decides to hear this case. And if they do, what side that they're going to land on. And so maybe we'll be reinviting you for a follow-up <laughs> webinar at some point. Yeah, for sure. Hopefully, you know, it's it's not every day that the Supreme Court picks up a trademark case. So, uh, you know, we hope that this will be the case. It'll definitely provide some clear um, clarity, which is needed. But I think, you know, in general, the doctrine is helpful, but it definitely needs to be polished in terms of the application. Yeah, it shows its limits in a case like this one. Yeah. Um, one last question before we leave. Um, yeah. I, so Decker bought the rights to the mark from a previous person or company. Yeah, Smith, I get Yeah. Right. Yeah. So um, yeah. And so, do we know how the mark was selected? originally was that in the case at all yeah there was a very brief brief history of, of the mark it was originally uh if i'm not mistaken um registered as og boots australia with like a uh, ram horns and then it eventually um became the the og mark that we know with the design with the with the big g in the middle uh in the bl- in black font and um i think they obviously got rid of disclaimable material. So obviously Australia was dropped from, from the mark and uh, boots also. And so they, they focused on the, you know, quote unquote, distinctive part of the mark, which to them was distinctive, but many other people thought was generic, obviously, and this was a dispute. But I think that was that was a strategy. And but there's no mention or there's no indication in the in the case law as or the, the decision as to why this particular mark was adopted as opposed to another mark. Like why, um, why UGG in the first place? Because I think, you know, the owner of um, UGG Imports obviously knew that that term, if not generic, let's, let's not say it wasn't necessarily generic in the, in the 70s in Australia, um, still had some sort of um, recognition as, you know, a term that identifies that type of good. And so I think... They just um, <laughs> were able to import it in the United States and, and get it through to registration. And, and from there, you know, became a billion dollar company. Excellent. Thank you very much. Our time <laughs> yeah. is over for today. Thank you very much from uh, Rothwell yeah. Fig. I failed to mention that um, David is also the co-chair of the American Bar Association's Fashion Committee. And so yeah. clearly speaks to us with a lot of knowledge <laughs> 
on this issue. David, thank you very much. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank Thank you. you everyone for participating in this webinar. Be on the lookout for our next one, as well as our next topic. My name is Louis-Pierre Gravel. On behalf of FICB, thank you very much for attending this morning, and I look forward to seeing you again shortly. Goodbye. Have a good day. If you have any questions about the topics discussed in this podcast, you can sign up for free and message us, ficp.org. You can also find out more of what's to come on the FICP Focus 45 podcast series, either on the events page of our website, LinkedIn, or via our newsletter. See you next time.